You're listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast, where we interview entrepreneurs who have sold their companies and the advisors that help them. We elicit expert advice from exit planners, attorneys, merger and acquisition experts, accountants, business appraisers, and financial advisors, all with a goal of educating you about the sales process. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started a sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. And now, here's your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition. Hello, everyone, and welcome. It's Noah Rosenfarb here again with another episode of the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. I'm very honored to have today's guest, Roy Williams. He's been working with post-transition families for over 50 years, and his firm has the largest database of research involving over 3,000 families and the issues that relate to their wealth. So, Roy, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for inviting me, Noah. I read your book, Preparing Heirs, which was really an instructive book, and I, I give it to a lot of my clients because I think it's helpful for them to understand this research that you've done. But tell me, kind of predating that research, what led you to aggregate all this data and the experiences that you had that wanted you to research this area of family wealth transfers? Well, our clients, uh, 50 years ago, our clients were and we were in the financial and estate planning business, and our clients kept saying, Roy, help me address the issue of giving my children my wealth and not destroy them. Because everything I read in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or in any other magazine and in our communities, we see people getting wealth and destroying them. And so how do we address that concern? So that, that concern's universal, I'd assume, but yet so many of the people in the professional fields, you know, the accountants, the lawyers, the wealth managers, they didn't take the time and haven't taken the time to understand the failure. So how did, what, what part of you led you to that motivation? Were you, are you a keen listener? <laughs> I don't know. If my wife would disagree if I said yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there are times when we were driving down the freeway and she'd say, well, where are you? And I said, why you ask? She said, I know you're not here. (laughs) (laughs) And I think many of us have that same uh, issue about being present. Uh, But uh, no, uh, to to answer your question more specifically, the the issue of, I was was standing on the backs of giants. I must tell you that. When I was first involved in in, in this world, I met Ed Hallback, the dean of the law school at Berkeley, and he introduced me to Jim Kasner, the professor at Harvard. And they said, Roy, don't sell products, solve problems. And so I started looking at what are the problems that are trying to solve. And most of the lawyers and accountants and the financial advisors and the investment people focus on governance, preservation, and taxes. And that's what the focus is of every estate plan that we've looked at globally. And yet, there's still a the shirt sleeve to shirt sleeve problem. Why is it that in China they call it poo boo goi tan dai? In Holland they call it clogs to clogs. In the United States they call it shirt sleeve to shirt sleeve. 
It's a worldwide phenomenon. Every culture, every every place in the world has the same 70% failure rate. And so my question to all of my giants that are standing on their backs, like Ed Hallback and Jim Gassner, and my question was, why is this occurring? And no one could give me the answer because everybody was focusing on governance, preservation, and taxes. Because, as you know, in, in your, your accounting business, that if you, most of the time people focus on the strategy and structure of everything that they are doing. That's what they teach in business school, etc. And then the lawyers, accounts, the advisors wrap governance, preservation, and taxes within that strategy and structure process. But nobody was asking the clients, is it working? And, and so when did you get started kind of aggregating this data and taking a hard look at the numbers? Probably 40 years ago. Yeah. And you know, maybe 45 years ago. And at what point were you able to draw some conclusions? Probably uh, 30 years ago. Uh, not 30 years ago. Yeah. Okay. It, it, we, 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 we researched for 20 years. Wow. We were starting to see the, uh, uh, what happened was uh, uh, no one could give us the answer, so I started asking clients, and then they suggested, uh, I was a member of tech, the executive committee, and so they sent us on a speaking tour, and I interviewed a thousand of them. Hmm. And uh, they're positive. You know what, what tech is, or now they call of it course. Vistage? Of course, now Vistage, yeah. Yeah, well, I was. I interviewed a thousand of those guys, and they introduced the people in their communities who had lost it all. Yeah. Uh, and so, and being, as you know, in tech, uh, our Vistage, when you're a member, there's open kimono. There are no secrets. Hmm. You give everything that you, that you have. And so, being a tech member, I was uniquely prepared to ask that kind of question that a college professor or a grad student could ask, but wouldn't even know enough to follow up with their, you know, follow the rabbit down the hole. And so it was really a, God was was guiding us because um, we were able to ask the kind of questions that people don't even ask. And, you know, fast forward, you know, 30 plus years to today, do you see the numbers changing? Is the data telling a different story? No. <laughs> and in fact, it's getting more. The, the, the only difference is the complexity of it. <laughs> For example, if you look at the issue of cordial hypocrisy. Now, cordial hypocrisy. You say, well, what's cordial hypocrisy? We have, how many times if mom and dad says, do this or do that, and this is my will, and this is my mission, and the kid says, your money, Dad, whatever you want to say is okay with you and me. But inside, they're saying, I don't like this. I'm unhappy. We had we were doing a meeting with a family, and there were four girls and two sons, and, and uh, the kids had been gone coming to Sunday brunch for all of their life. And they didn't want to tell mom no because they didn't want to hurt her feelings. They loved their mom. And, but they had other spouses. Their spouses had children. I mean, had parents. And so the other spouses wanted us, their children to go to their house once in a while. Yeah. But they couldn't tell mom because of cordial hypocrisy. <laughs> and so we finally spent about a half a day in the family meeting, and that subject came up. And mom looked at everybody and said, I'd rather go back to cordial hypocrisy. <laughs> everybody laughed, and they said, Mom, will never go back to cordial hypocrisy. And she said, I know, but it sure was easier for me. 
Right. What do you attribute this lack of change in? Now that we know, we know the answers are, you know, trust and communication, as you found, and uh, being open and sharing planning and having, you know, honest, direct dialogue. So if we know the, the solution to the problem, why isn't it being implemented? Because we are a voice in the wilderness. When I talk about uh, addressing the trust and communication, they can't even define trust. Well, how would you define trust? Most people think, well, let's say, a visceral feeling. You know if you trust somebody or not. But no one can define trust. Mm-hmm. So if you can't define it, how can you ever fix it? Okay? Yeah. If, you know, and so the problem we have is they don't teach what trust is in business school or law school. They have difficulty because it's a warm fuzzy. They yeah. don't want you i tell you, there's a great, a great book that you could recommend to your clients. It's called The American Icon by Bryce Hoffman. And what it really is is the story of Alan Mulally, the president of Ford Money Motor Company. Yeah. When he walked into that door five, six years ago, he said there was no common values any place in Ford. Number two, there was no common mission any place in the world. Everybody was heading in different directions. And number three, no one trusted one another, including on the board of directors. And that's all in his book. And it took him two or three years to rebuild the values, mission, and trust. And today, he's there, the shining light in the automobile industry. And he's considered one of the great leaders of America today. And so many of the families that I've interacted with, they know how to effectively run their company, but when yeah. it comes to running the family, first of all, you know, the, perhaps the CEO is different. And in a lot of instances, dad's the CEO of the company, but mom is necessarily CEO of the family. And, and so how do you suggest families take a look at trust and communication and, and evaluate themselves and, and make improvements? Well, in preparing errors, on page 57, there's a 10-question quiz. Okay. And, and I believe that's available as a download from your website as well. Yeah, yeah it is. And if they just want to take that 10-question quiz, it will identify where the, just as a broad, general, you know, individual. Now, that's not a family-wide uh, survey. And if they find that they're not, they don't score so well with that survey, and that'll give them a little indication as to where their family might be. Okay. Yeah. It's about 85% accurate. And when, when, when some of these family leaders take that, they look at me and they say, you know, Roy, I didn't do so good. What do I do now? <laughs> and I've had law firms, all the senior partners take the 10-question quiz, and they'll get uh, 2%. And these are the guys that are doing all this estate planning. And they say, you know, this is embarrassing that, we're not, that we can't answer these questions. Have you seen at all any shift in the education from quantitative skills to qualitative skills, whether it's at law school or business school or in the accounting profession? I was just talking to the the, the retired dean of the business school, I mean, uh, the law school at Berkeley, uh, Ed Hallback, who used to be on my board of directors. He's now 82 and just rewrote the trust law or something in the United States. And he said, Roy, he said, I've been preaching, trying to get people to make these adjustments in law school for 40 years. <laughs> he said, 
but they're blind to it because they think unless it's established in a court, they can't use it. In other words, there's paragraphs and sentences, and, and for example, we require uh, when, when, when the families identify their values, their, their mission, and then a glossary that defines the mission in depth, we want them to give it to their legal and tax counsel and say, okay, now we want you to look at those documents and see if there's any conflict between our current our current wills and documents and our new values, mission, and glossary. Mm-hmm. And there are, you know, many law firms get scared to death of it because they said, wait a minute, this is too soft. This isn't, you know, we don't want to do this and we don't want to represent the whole family. We only want to represent dad or mom or whatever the case may be. And But other law firms will say, look, we don't mind. We'll have them sign a non-conflicted you know, agreement, um, and uh, we'll work with everybody. And we'll begin to address these soft issues. And that's going to be more expensive because they're now having to deal with issues that they've never dealt, dealt with before. And so part of the, uh, and I've given uh, ACTAC, you know, the yeah. legal group, I've given a dozen talks before them. And even ACTEC, which is you know, the premier guys in the academic side of, of uh, law, um, they find it, they don't want to deal with these issues. So it isn't that, that, that they can't do it, it's just that they're uncomfortable and they're, or, or they're terrified of going into this soft issue. Yeah. Well, you know, our show's geared to owners that are thinking of selling their companies and the advisors that help them. What advice do you have to the owners that are listening about some of the things they should be doing now to prepare for their transfer based on, you know, the insights over the thousands of families you've interacted with? Yeah. First of all, I'd suggest that they declare themselves beginners, okay? And, I love and, that. <laughs> I love that. That's that's really great. I'm gonna I'm gonna use that often. Well, you know, it's it's really funny. Uh, I took a course about 35 years ago, and uh, you know, the opening course that the leader of the course gave each one of us three silk scarves, and uh, showed us how to juggle three silk scarves. And after dropping the scarves 50 times on the floor, I sat them on the desk and I sat down. He said, Mr. Williams, you look exasperated. I said, you got that right. He said, what's the source of your frustration? And I said, I spent a lot of money to be here with my with two more two coaches, and it wasn't to learn how to juggle those scars. He said, maybe if you, he said, based upon my watch, with less than three minutes, you quit. Maybe if you declare yourself a beginner, you'd learn faster. <laughs> so... <laughs> I, I tried to crawl under the desk. <laughs> yeah. Oh, because that's, he was right. And that's a great way to frame the conversations. It really um, was. And so if we're a beginner, then I had, I had a businessman sold his company at $80 million. And he said, Roy, I said, why don't you return your phone calls? So on the spindle, he had you know, 100 phone calls that he hadn't returned. He said, Roy, those are banks that called me this morning wanting to know if I want to roll over my $100,000 CD. <laughs> I said, are there other ways to manage money than putting it in every bank in the United States? He said, Roy, you don't understand. And otherwise, I said, what don't I understand? He said, I'm an MBA. I said, so? He said, I've just sold a company where I got $80 million. 
He said, I'm a successful man. I said, so? He said, I'm also 57 years old. I said, so? He said, well, those credentials, I'm supposed to know how to manage $80 million, and I don't have a clue. <laughs> so I said, raise your right hand. He raised that. I said, I'm a beginner. I'm a beginner. And the area yeah. of passive income. And the area of passive income. And within six months, he was smoking because we got him a coach to learn how to deal with money. <laughs> and manage their money is, is, is not managing a company. <laughs> and so being a beginner and open to be a beginner is a huge step for these guys. Okay? Yeah, that's great. The other thing they need to know is is it isn't the money is only a warehouse for, for energy. That's all money is. Money comes and goes in families. If they had a choice between putting all of their assets in one hand and all of their money in the other and, and their values in the other hand, which would they give to their children? Well, most people yeah, no, fail with my values. Yeah. Okay? And so then why not let's focus on the values? Let's focus on what they can learn. How can they grow? For example, can we put, let's say, uh, you can anywhere, let's use a million dollars because it's easy as a miracle. Or we get 100,000, but any number you want to use. And we're going to put 100,000 or a million dollars into a trust fund. That, that million dollars is going to be your child who will work with hiring a money manager, will work with them every month, and at each, each quarter you'll report back to the family, and at the end of the year we'll split the profits. And it just somehow works out that instead of giving them $13,000 a year, they earn 13000 The difference between giving them the 13000 they can give tax-free and having them earn it is dignity. And you know, in your role, the welfare takes away the dignity. Okay. And the same way with kids who were getting three thirteen thousand from mom and thirteen thousand from dad, twenty six thousand dollars a year becomes part of their lifestyle, and it takes away the dignity. But if they earn it, it provides dignity. Mm-hmm. Okay. We had a woman. Great. We had a woman thirty five years old on Sunday. On Monday, she got a phone call from New York and said, what do you want to do with your money? She said, what money? He said, well, your grandfather put stock in his company when you were born. It's now grown, and it's now you're supposed from 35 to 40, you're going to get income in the next five years and then start getting principal. She said, well, how much am I going to get? He said, well, this year will be about half a million dollars after taxes. She and her husband were earning about 60000 gross. Yeah. Three years later, they were divorced. Now, all that money emasculated the, 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 her husband. And you no longer felt important, and it destroyed their marriage. Now, I know that being a grandfather and a great-grandpa, I don't want to do that to my children and grandchildren. Yeah. Okay? That was not grandpa's intent. It was doing out of love, but nobody's preparing the heirs. So when these businessmen are going to be selling their companies, they need to think not just here at the, at the point in their nose, but long term. What is the purpose of this? What is yeah. the purpose of our wealth? What is wealth? Is wealth stock, bonds, cash, that kind of real estate? Or does it include the, the networking capacity, the background, the education, the experience of all the kids, including their sons and daughters-in-laws? 
wow, what a huge difference that makes. And the kids, instead of being embarrassed about wealth, they're looking at wealth as an entirely different view. Pretty soon they're pretty proud of the fact that their wealth isn't just money, but is the values and networking capacity of what we're doing for the world. What a, what a transition to this. Yeah, there's a lot uh, to be said <laughs> for how families can prepare. You know, one of the things that I've been noticing, perhaps because of the news, you know, you've got Bill and Melinda Gates and Warren Buffett teaming up and creating the Giving Pledge. And to me, there appears to be a sea change in the way parents are thinking about how to leave their estates. And, you know, especially at that upper end where people are saying, I'd rather leave my kids enough that they could do anything, but not enough they could do nothing. And the rest I'd like to give away. Well, wait a minute. Um, Hold on a minute. Wait a minute. Wait, a minute. wait, wait, wait. You know, we have to understand that I deal with a lot of very, very, very rich people. <clears throat> Think about what's really behind it. If I give away 50% of my assets to a charity, I get a tax deduction for it. You're familiar with that. Of course. If it's an operating foundation, which most people don't even know it's this, that can, that can be my operating foundation. So when I give away half of my estate to my foundation, who controls it? The, the kids and grandkids. <laughs> Bingo. Yeah. <laughs> and so have I really given the control of $20 billion? No. What I've done is save the estate taxes, and that gift of 50% Wipe out your estate tax. So now I'm going to transfer my, my estate 100% to my family. Now, tell me what a wonderful idea that is. Well, I think the issue that, that I'm projecting is that families are recognizing that the, the gift of wealth is not always a welcome gift. And maybe it's because of the reading I do or the people I speak with, but there seems to be some concern that the wealth would not be helpful to the children or, or the grandchildren. Exactly. And I was going to say, so in that context, you know, what do you see happening? You know, do you think that, that these parents are becoming more aware of what the issues might be, or these are the same things you've seen over the last 50 years? And yet at the end of the day, they go to the estate planner and they devise a zero-tax estate plan because they're more focused on the taxation than the success of the wealth transfer. The, the, the sad part of it is they don't know where to go, and so they go to their tax, their legal and tax and investment insurance, et cetera, planners. But what they're not asked is what is the purpose of our wealth? They're not addressing, for example, when we talk, start looking at people who give away money in philanthropic, how, how many people are going back after a back year later to find out are they spending the money where they said they were going to spend it. Is the mission of that philanthropic foundation or that philanthropy that they're giving their money to the same as the mission for our wealth? Well, most of them don't even have a mission for their wealth. How in God's name can they put anybody, put any standards or ask them to follow your model if you don't have a model? Your children, wouldn't it be wonderful? Great example, young 13-year-old was among six kids, and dad and mom said, we're going to give each one of you $1,000 to give away this year out of his foundation. He wasn't a rich guy, he was a modest guy. And it came to the 
13-year-old, and she said, Sarah, where do you want to spend your money? She said, I want to give it to the children's home. And, she, and they said, okay. And so they asked her and questioned why. And so they agreed that she could do that. So they sent it. She, mom, dad signed the check, and she wrote who she wanted it to go to. A year later, she's now 14. And they said, Sarah, are you going to give your $1,000 to this children's home again? She said, oh, no. She said, why not? She said, well, first of all, I, I went down to the children's home and worked there on the weekends. And I learned that my money didn't go to the children that went to raise more money. And that's not why I gave my money to them. And number two, they didn't even send me a thank you note. And $1,000 is a lot of money to me. Well, that girl who is now in her mid-40s, is one of the most trust. I mean, when she's buying a car or anything, she does her homework, and she does her due diligence. And so what a great lesson that, that, by the way, that went through that whole family, that giving away money is a a real lot, lot of work. So then when they went back and talked to the accountants and lawyers who were running the foundation, and asking them, where did you spend my money? It, it, it was, it's like a stealth training tool. Yeah. Kids, they learned that if they have to hold these other people accountable, maybe, maybe they better be held accountable. I, I've uh, worked with a handful of families where the grandparents organize this uh, giving, either in a contest style or, or you know, blank check for every child or grandchild. And and I think it's a great way for grandparents to influence their grandkids without perhaps overstepping their bounds or stepping on their children's toes. What do you, what role do you recommend that affluent grandparents can play in the lives of their grandkids as it relates to you know the successful transition of family wealth in its entirety, not just the money, but all the other things that you talk there's, about. There's a couple of couple of things that you might do. Um, there's a doctor here in San Clemente, California, uh, Gus Jalomas, and uh, he takes uh, 30 doctors and nurses down to various places in Peru and around the world uh, a couple of times a year. And he spends 10 days, and he takes an operating room with him, you know, literally put it on the airplane. And they, they go down and they do operation on kids and families and people that need it out and jump from villages. And they operate uh, 16 hours a day, and it's for 10 straight days. And they allow two or three teenagers to go with them to be orderlies and that kind of stuff. Those kids are working their tails off. And when they come back, every one of those kids has gone on to medical school, nurses, or doing something very productive, and their grade point just went sky high. And remember, this is a very important comment for your listeners. Competence leads to confidence, and that leads to self-esteem. You see that in athletes, okay? And when these kids see that, and that, that what they're doing is more important, and it's not money, it's not things, it's not jewelry or, or cars, it's something that makes their heart sing. And grandparents could do, there's another guy, uh, Namaste Direct, Bob Graham up in San Francisco. He does the same thing takes people into the jungle. I've been in Guatemala and Honduras and Belize crawling into Mayan tents, tents, I don't mean tent, homes, and there are metal, you know, pieces of metal that they've got 
hanging on trees and limbs, and that's how they live. No, no running water, no, no uh, electricity, no plumbing, no television, no cell phone, but they have hope. They're excited. They're, they're living. And so the kids, when they work with those families, and they'll build hospitals and do all kinds of things, it, it, it literally transforms those kids. And so grandparents can do a great job of finding those kind of opportunities and send the kids down and, and work with those kinds of opportunities. It's a great. truly a gift. Yeah, that's terrific. And outside of philanthropy, do you see other things? You mentioned investing, you know, setting up a pool of investments for which perhaps kids or grandkids could be responsible. What are some other tactical strategies that people can implement? Well, you know, uh, they can start a bank, an investment pool, okay? And if somebody wants to start a business or do something they want to do, they have to put together a business plan. The next question is, what's the business plan? So they'll get some coaching and stuff. Then they have to present it to a, a bank, a normal American bank, and say, let's see if we can get qualified by that bank. And if they can get the bank to qualify it, which is today is a pain because they're so bad, uh, but if they'll qualify, then the family will say, we'll do that, only we'll do it cheaper money. Mm-hmm. And that's another, see, that's a third-party independent it's not mom, mom and dad saying no, okay? It's a third-party independent view. Right. I think yeah. that's another one. Uh, they can, the kids can. There's, there's so many different ways from philanthropic business opportunities, entrepreneurial opportunities. Uh, you know, one of the things that I did when my sons were younger, I, I called friends of mine and I said, would you hire my son? I'll pay, I don't want them to know, but I'll pay for them to be be hired. I want you to work their tail off. <laughs> and so they did. Well, my, all three of my sons and my grandchildren are all hard workers, you know, because of the, you know, what they learned, not by me telling them what to do, but by somebody else just paying them, telling them what to do. So there's yep. lots of ways you can cut the cake, especially when you're talking about business people. Who have a lot of resources. So if uh, if we were sitting by the fire, I'm sure we could talk for hours on end about various families and the scenarios they went through. But maybe uh, for today's podcast, you could share a story or two that really resonates with not only the changes you've seen families make, but also you know gives you the smile about the great work that you've been doing over the last 50 years. Well, I can tell you that we've saved over 350 marriages. Wow. By rebuilding trust and communication. Because we found that almost every breakdown of marriages is based upon a breakdown of trust and communication. And, yeah. and so that is alone is an enormous way. They're getting rid of cordial hypocrisy. Another example is giving family people tools. We had a woman who was an OBGYN and women had babies. And so she had to go deliver babies even though she had promised her children that she'd go to their football game and their dance recital or whatever the case may be. But she didn't show. But she said the children all understand. Well, they didn't understand. And they grew up thinking that money and business was more important than they were. And it wasn't that they wouldn't have understood, but she didn't have her children, her teacher, her nurse, or her secretary call in 
tell the kids mom can't be there because so-and-so's having a baby. And so that same thing happened to a CEO that ran this huge company. And his daughter said, I don't trust my dad. I said, why don't you trust him? He's an extraordinary man of high degree of, of, of skills. And she said, money and business is more important than anybody. I know what his focus is. I said, well, can you give me an example? She said, sure. Last Tuesday, he said, would you please come to my office at 3 o'clock? She said, I got there about 10 minutes to 3. And at 6 o'clock, his secretary came out and said, your dad's still in the board meeting. He'll call you later. And has, has that happened before? She said, many times. I know what his priorities are. I said, would you be open to talk about that at the next meeting? She said, of course. But he won't listen. Bigger, true. <laughs> Took five times for him, her to tell him that before he listened, before he could even hear, because he was complex-minded. And when he realized that, he said, oh, honey, I didn't realize I was doing this to you. I promise I will never do this again as long as you live. She said, and her eyes rolled back, she said, I know you're mean that right now, Daddy, but I also know where your priorities are. Money and business. And he slammed his fist down. He said, I promise I will never violate this again. Well, three years later, according to her record and his, he had been 100% reliable. The most interesting wow. part of it, the most interesting part of that is that the president of the family office, who the company president's report, who said that all of the company presidents said Dad was more reliable to them also. Hmm. And his question was, what a difference. So just by being reliable to his daughter, it also reflected his, his relationship with every one of his employees. So can you contrast the work that you do or the work of others that attempt to have the same output, you know, where families have successful wealth transfers from family therapy. What are the main distinctions? Well, first of all, we don't fix people. They fix themselves. All we do is give them the tools, and then we practice the tools. Okay? Number one. Number two, as far as I know, there's nobody else in the world that has a research base that their process is based upon. Okay? And mm -hmm. so when we measure somebody going in, we know what the problems are. We interview everyone between three and five hours, individually, before we start. We know what the problems are, where the, where the bones are there before we start. And then we address those concerns. We do the 50-question survey, which surveys everyone in the family, mom, dad, kids, spouses, grandchildren, over 16, and grandchildren's spouses, in case they're... They're, uh, uh, you know, that's where they are. That's where I am. I've got 30 year old grandchildren. And so those, th those were measured. And then a year later, two years later, when we're, when we're finished, we measure them again. And on page 82 to 89 of Preparing Heirs, it gives you two, two examples of, of a family after eight meetings measured again. And so as far as I know, we're the only, and, as far as anyone, we're trying to find out more people. Um, we don't know of any place in the world, actually, where you can go and um, and be have quantified or quantify where the family is today and the growth in the family. Measure it again. Right. Well, that's great. Well, I want to uh, 
you know, thank you for your contributions uh, via your research and your writings and the work that you're doing with families. And maybe before we wrap up, if you have any last thoughts to share with our listeners, you, can, you know, feel free. And then also uh, let them know how they might get in touch with you, get a copy of your book, and where the best place to go for that might be. Sure. Probably the best thing to do is to call or to send me an email, Roy, R-O-Y, at thewilliamsgroup.org. Now, that's not .com, that's thewilliamsgroup.org, and that will come directly to me. And uh, uh, if they have any questions, that, or my phone number is 949-940-9140. Those other areas where they can go. The other thing that uh, that you may they may want to think about is roles. What is the role of of uh, their children? What role do the children want to play? What is their interest and passion? How how do we begin to identify what the roles are going to be needed uh, in the future? How can our we help our children and grandchildren understand those roles? and have an interest in those roles and begin to prepare themselves for those roles. Because everyone has multitude of roles in their families, but nobody articulates the qualification standards for those roles or the performance standards. And so those are areas where they can begin to explore for their children and grandchildren and where their interests and passions are. And so those are gifts that, uh, that parents and grandparents can provide for their children and grandchildren. Terrific. Well, thanks again, Roy, for joining us today. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Don't forget you could email me, noah, at freedomadv.com with questions or comments or suggestions for future guests. And, of course, we'd appreciate it if you liked us on uh, Facebook or iTunes, wherever you may have found us. Uh, Share it with the world. We'd love to influence more people and let them hear how to prepare for a successful transition. So the best to all of you listening and the best to you, Roy. Thanks again for being here today. Thanks for listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started the sales process, or are post-deal, We aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. If you have any questions about today's podcast, you can contact your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition at 855-540-0400. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and give us your feedback. Until next time, this is the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast.